This is Mind Your Business, and I'm your host, Bob Burnett. I'm the founder of Barefoot Mining, a former CTO for the PC company Gateway, and a Bitcoin evangelist. Today, I welcome Ryan Condren. Ryan is the CEO of Titan, an up-and-coming provider of software services to the Bitcoin mining industry, and a critically important entry into the mining pool world. Let's drop in now on my conversation with Ryan. So Ryan, great to see you. Uh, it's been a, a long time. We we got a chance to sit on a panel together in Miami, which is where I got to meet you. And uh, I enjoyed being on that panel to you and quickly realized that we had a lot of similar philosophical approaches to the world and to Bitcoin. And so uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I always like to start in these sort of interviews um, with a little bit about the person, but um, I'd like to really start kind of early. So uh, like, tell me, what was what was your childhood like? Were you an athlete? Were you a musician? <laughs> Were you the nerd? Were you the, uh, the party guy? You know, tell me a little bit about the younger Ryan. You started early, early. I was <laughs> yeah. thinking like early, like 10 years ago, early um early early i was i was the kid that uh would play for hours and hours in his room with legos um so literally my room like the entire floor of my room was just covered with legos for five hours a day six hours a day uh-huh. and i would just that that was my heaven so i would just i would just build everything and anything um from from as for as long as i can remember um you know, so, but now, you know, I have kids, so that's my excuse. I still play with Legos, but now <laughs> yeah. I have a proper yeah. excuse. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. And so, so as you got a little older, were you then kind of still that same guy? Were you the, the tinkerer? Were you the guy that worked on cars? Were you the guy that yeah. um, built solar it's, panels? What were you doing? I was, I was the kid that, uh, I took the computers really, really quickly. Um, so I remember when I was, when I was like 10, my dad had an old laptop that, that was, was busted and it was running an old version of DOS. And, and, uh, so I started playing around with that and I found out I could, you know, get some games on it and uh, loaded games. Then I found QBasic and started like nice. playing around with QBasic and then learning a lot of, uh, the, the, the basics of programming against DOS. Um, was this by the chance I, I, like early nineties? What period was this? Yeah, this was, yeah. Early nineties. Okay. So playing, yeah, I actually, I think it was a gateway laptop. Uh, wow. Funny, funny enough. So what it was, this, the screen was like this big. Wow. And, uh, wow. That's amazing. So that was uh, something I designed then what you were, yeah. you were working on. <laughs> funny enough. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, so that, that was my, uh, uh intro into coding. Um, was we would go on a family trip, uh, uh, you know, a, a car trip for several hours, and I'd be in the back uh, on, on the laptop uh, going through a Visual Basic book when I was, you know, nine or 10. Um, when I was uh, 12, uh, I, I got upgraded because my dad had his old computer and he passed it off to me. And it had a, a website builder on it called Front Page, which was one of Microsoft's original, that. you know, front site or yep. uh, website builders. Yeah. And uh, he told me that if I built a website for our church, um, he'd give me a hundred dollars. So that was that was my mission. I, I learned uh, HTML and and all all the different aspects of building a website and was was uh, working with front page and all the different frames and forms and 
Um, uh, apparently I was taking too long and he went, he went ahead and built one in parallel, but I ended up spinning off and, uh, starting at 12, I just started building websites for everything. Um, uh, everything from, uh, you know, I had a website for my dog. I had a website for like random businesses I'd come up with. I, I used to play age of empires a lot when that came out. So I started like building websites for age of empires. And, and that was a lot of my early teens was, uh, either, tinkering with uh, web stuff or um, I mean, I, I played sports too, but I, a lot of my, a lot of my time went towards uh, software stuff. Was, was, was that, so at that point, was that your passion? You, you felt, did you already kind of know where you were going at that point? Um, not, not really. I, you know, I, I thought I wanted to get into like film. I, I really loved the idea of like directing and acting and storytelling and I thought that was going to be my passion. Um, what I didn't realize then is what you devote your time to is typically what you become good at. And what you become good at is typically what you enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was devoting so much of my time to uh, building websites. And, uh, you know, whenever I had a side project or whatever, it was always web-based. Um, you know, up through college, um, after college, um, through most of my early jobs, I always had side projects that were all web-based. So... Um, I've been building web applications and websites for the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of my life. And so I just got really good at it and, and just stuck with it. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I, this, uh, you know, uh, shifted by a generation or two, you know, I had somewhat the same experience. Um, in fact, I, I was telling you kind of before we got started that, um, I live in South Florida and was impacted by hurricane Ian and, um, one of the casualties of the flood, because my house was flooded, was I have a collection of old computers, and yeah. I had uh, because yeah. uh, and and one of the casualties was an old Amiga that I had, um, okay. and and uh, I was almost emotional about it actually because when I, um, I, I I'm so old I was I was um, my participation in computers predated the personal computer and as it's defined today, um, yeah. meaning, you know, a DOS or windows based or Mac based, you know, so I was programming on uh, Commodore Vic 20, for instance, was my very first computer, which had wow. 4k of Ram. Um, I had a cassette tape for storage. Um, I had a little black and white monitor that could maybe fit 80 characters on the whole screen because the, wow. the way it came up, <laughs> um, you know, debugging was an absolute nightmare. And, um, but, but, uh, you know, I, I started to develop my passion kind of in that same time frame, and, um, you know, eventually became TRS eighties, Radio Shack TRS eighties, my high school, yeah. we had a little computer program and I started, I started off on that, on that, um, angle. And, uh, I think by the time I started college, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And interestingly, I, I started as a software guy. But a software guy then and a software guy now are very different because the software guy then really? was we were low level. Like I was when I was in college, I was writing um, assembly level code. We did some C coding, but, you know, we were writing things like operating systems and compilers and debuggers like like that's, yep. you know, that's where that's where things were in the it, it early required. 80s. It and, required low level critical thinking and 
you know, when, when you start out at that level, you have a, a complete understanding of the systems down here and every subsequent system afterwards. And yeah. what I run into with a lot of developers these days is they've learned up here. And then when you ask them, you know, why are they doing it like this? And it's just because that's the way it's done. And then you point point out that down here, it doesn't make any sense. And it's, you know, not optimized. Right. And it, it's hard to find developers that can track all the way back down like that. Yeah, I was that was kind of what I was thinking, even kind of where I was going was if you were working with front page and you were doing HTML development. In that era, um, you know, developing a website in, I'm guessing, 1994 is very different than developing a website today or even five years ago. Um, oh, yeah. You know, uh, I mean, you don't have to be a coder to make a reasonable website anymore. But, um, yeah. you know, well, the, the... I, I, I remember my, my first web application. So I was uh, I was out of college. I got hired by a nonprofit um, to program a time and attendance system because they had about 600 employees, uh, they were in 14 different offices in three different states, and they were still on paper-based time cards. Uh, so they said, you know, hey, Ryan, can you build us a time and attendance, you know, web application? And I said, sure. Well, I hadn't built an at-scale web application at this point, um, but I had so much experience just building websites and HTML coding and so much just just raw code. And I had never used like Visual Studio or a um, like a coding engine. I had written everything in Notepad. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing uh, this web application, I wrote everything in Notepad, everything from pulling in the assemblies um, at the top of my Notepad file to, and I modularized everything. And I had just just, just uh, folders and folders full of just straight Notepad files. Yeah. And it was, the, it was the most optimized application I've written to date because it was, there was no overhead. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I remember when, when I had left that position, another programmer tried to take that up and they were asking, you know, what you know, development environment did I use and how do they go in and edit the code? And I was like, well, you just open the notepad file and find where you want to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was uh, pr pretty crazy. So, yeah. well, that's, that, you know, that's great to hear it. And, you know, um, I think that what we're going to talk about, at least some of what I want to talk about today is, dive deeper than I think most people typically dive um, because I think there are things at the base layer that I think we can discuss that you can educate people about that um, very few people really know. Uh, and um, I, I think that having at least a decent number of people in the industry that, that have this base level understanding is really important. Um, you know, I, I like to think of the world in layers and stacks, um, you know, and, and I think you can do it in different ways. You can look at, um, for instance, you know, one, one perspective might be, Hey, uh, the, the personal computer is almost like a base layer. And then the internet kind of came on top of that. And what we're doing with Bitcoin is sitting on top of that, top of that, yeah, you know, and um, I think very few people probably think that way about, you know, layers, but Bit Bitcoin is constructed as layers and a lot of the um, altcoin infrastructures are trying to do everything kind of with without layers or, or maybe with minimal layers and do a whole bunch of things. Yeah. And, you know, architecturally, I don't really agree with that philosophically. I think it's very hard to do that. Um, um, it's yeah. Less 
so so altcoins are interesting um you know i i got into mining in late 2012 and originally we we're just mining straight bitcoin and that was that that made sense and we started realizing you know with the the, the asics coming out and butterfly labs uh, starting to ship you know what what they could produce at the time um, and we started realizing that our GPUs were quickly becoming outperformed. So we needed to find something else to do with it. And that's when my buddy came to me. He's like, Ryan, he's like, I found this thing called Litecoin. He's like, I mined 5,000 of them yesterday with my GPU. Yeah. He's like, so we, we need to switch. And because we were, we were looking at BTCE and Vercorex and some of the exchanges back then. And we could actually ROI on our equipment of, in under 30 days easily. Uh, yeah. So depending on which altcoin we mined and then converted it to Bitcoin or cash, we could, you know, sometimes ROI in about a week. Um, cool. So that was it just depending on the liquidity of the network and the exchanges. So um, altcoins in the exchanges uh, were actually very lucrative for, for miners if they could pivot quickly enough. Um, a lot of the altcoins that we were seeing were just carbon copies of Bitcoin, um, then carbon copies of Litecoin and carbon copies of like Purecoin if they wanted a proof of stake element. Um, and and that was that was OK for some networks. Like uh, there was one called like Barbecue Coin, which is oft oftentimes I, I remember that like, one. <laughs> it, it was like it was such this fringe coin. It was out for like a like they launched it for like a week. The developers abandoned it after like a week because it was just a it was a dumb meme coin. Um, but it hit like an exchange on Cripsy and then it stayed alive for the next like three years where it actually had value, even though the developers had completely abandoned the network. Um, and it was, there was no new technology in it. It was just, it was just a free floating coin. Um, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of coins like that. Um, so altcoins, when they're used um, to test out new technologies uh you know whether it be like snarks or like uh you know zero knowledge proofs and and all uh, even like litecoin experimenting with a lightning network before it hits bitcoin um there's there's a lot of great use cases for um altcoins um but until a coin is stopped being referred to as an altcoin and it's just it's just a coin it's just uh i don't know it there's a lot of them <laughs> I don't there know what sure to say are. about it. There sure are. Well, that's as as I mean, we all take a different path to to where we end up. And you know, I started because I ended up taking my my original knowledge as a software guy. Probably looks to to the well. I it basically I became a hardware guy, and so yeah. my career path, um, as I think the listeners know, is through gateway and hardware development. That led me into designing Ethereum mining equipment, first of all. Um, yeah. And so that's how I got into this, was trying to bring professional-grade designs to Ethereum mining equipment. I thought about it as a computer guy, first and foremost, though. And, yeah. and, and it took a while to kind of flip that and, and start looking at it with the emphasis on Bitcoin. So it was a computer guy looking at it from a fiat mentality, and now I... Now I look at it differently. You know, I look at it as a Bitcoin guy, and you know what I do is hopefully provide um, some some of the infrastructure at this base layer to help secure and grow the grow the network. Yeah. Um, but but and and I think I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I think you're kind of talking about something similar. We you know we all take this journey to get to a certain point, and and um, you know I I 
I would probably be pretty close to a Bitcoin maximalist right now if I'm not. That doesn't mean that I don't think at some point in time somebody will create some coin that has some value. I just haven't seen it myself yet. So yeah, um, and it, I don't it, think any of them are going to be money. So it it's hard because um, the I think the litmus test uh, for for Bitcoin and these cryptocurrency networks as a currency um, was always like, can I buy a cup of coffee with it? Yeah. And I, I remember getting a lot of discussions in like 2013 of like, well, how do I buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin? And it, it's gotten to the point now where it's like, well, why would you want to? Um, because we're seeing uh, Bitcoin as a, a really uh, a place to hold value, a place to hold funds rather than necessarily a daily transactional uh, network. And I, I really think as time goes on, these different networks are going to find their use case. Um, so Ethereum really became like the grand central station of tokens and Web3 and all these DeFi products. I mean, for better or worse, uh, it's, it's people really experimenting in the ecosystem and what you can do with this trustless technology. Um, Bitcoin, I think, has the advantage of uh, being very, very hard to change. Um, so it's, I think it's developed a lot slower than the other networks, um, which is exactly what it's designed to do. I mean, Satoshi purposefully put 10 minute block times, one megabyte blocks. Um, it's, it's slow, it's consistent, it's simple. The, the, the um, blockchain pattern for Bitcoin and the reward mechanism is actually very simple and elegant compared to a lot of these other networks. Um, so having it as, you know, the, the base layer security roots or economic root of all these other chains makes a lot of sense just because it's, it's relatively stable, <laughs> whether you look at the markets or not, it's, it's relatively stable technology wise compared to everything else. Yeah. Certainly within its own ecosystem, maybe as measured by external systems, it's volatile, but, Oh yeah. You know, that's, you know, that's not necessarily a reflection of Bitcoin. It's maybe more a reflection of, the external system yeah so. one thing i was going to add is so the the parent company for titan is a company called block and that was founded by jeff garzik and matt rozak um jeff garzik is i think like the number three developer on bitcoin so there's like satoshi gavin and then jeff and i had this discussion with with jeff um, early on when i first came on board with the company i'm just asking him like what was his interactions with satoshi like and what you know, what did he see that was different when he saw the code base and everything? And he said that uh, when he first saw the Bitcoin code base uh, from directly from Satoshi, he said it was essentially unstructured and it was as though he had written it in Word, like notepad files. Um, so it wasn't in a, a typical uh, development environment. It was it was like he had this idea and he made it highly optimized and he just, he knew the code and he didn't use like, traditional development environments. He just, he, he wrote the raw code. And that was really encouraging to hear that it was um, really anyone that has this low level understanding of, of programming and has a really good idea. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're traditionally trained. It doesn't matter if you, you know, you've been working engineering jobs the majority of your life. It's like, you can write something really cool, really elegant that can change the world. And Sorry, that was a complete aside, yeah. but that you really know what though? Me. That's I, I love that you brought that up. I'm glad you did, Ryan. And it, it relates back to what you and I were talking about before, you know, how how I started um, you know, writing at the operating system level and firmware level. 
um, and you writing at the front page level or, you know, uh, the, the HTML level and websites. And it means that Satoshi did the same thing because if you, and by the way, I am, I am now a dinosaur as a coder. So forgive me if I'm even off a little bit, but right. you know, if you, if, if your code is structured by just taking pieces from different libraries or code that other people have essentially written and you're piecing it together, I'm not saying there's not value in it, but, but you're really kind of more of a, maybe a high level system architect kind of putting something together versus like a craftsman building something, you know, taking a block of wood and turning it into a, a piece it's of art. You great, know? great analogy. Um, I, I think case in point for this, and I, I always uh, find this rather humorous when, when it comes up in discussions, like when, uh, when the U.S. government rolled out like healthcare.gov um, and that whole like Obamacare uh, system. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like hundreds of millions of dollars that they were they were paying for this uh, insurance portal that I believe it ended up going to a Canadian contractor that then outsourced it to kind of overseas developers. And the, the, um, the site itself, when you actually loaded the site, it was, it was just so cumbersome. It was slow. It had so many things going on and it was really bogged down with so many people hitting the site all at once. And I remember looking at the code behind for the site, and it was loading something like 50 or 60 different libraries. And it was, it was literally like you were saying, like they were just pulling in uh, all these different modules from all these different places. And it just created this monstrosity of a site. And I, I just remember looking at thinking like, well, I could have built something a lot better for a fraction of the price they probably got paid yes. for that. Um, but it just, it just reminded me that, uh, you know, that, that's what a lot of coders do these days. That's a lot, a lot of projects end up just being uh, Frankenstein's monster of pulling in elements from other code bases. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me because I wonder like my education served me very well. And I have a, I have a degree in it's a computer engineering, which would basically be a, a blend of computer science and electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had to learn things like gate design. You know, I did things like design, yeah the internal workings of a cache controller or an ALU inside a CPU. We did those types of things. So I have an understanding of um, the way some of those algorithms work and the way the CPU is constructed, the way it works, so the CPU interfaces with the memory units and those sort of things. I, I don't know if they teach that anymore. I'm really not sure. Um, and I had to know yeah. that because my next step was, okay, now I have to build the firmware and then the operating system that sits on top of that. I I had to know that. So yeah, um, they they may be up here now and mm -hmm. lost all this stuff down here. It, it's funny that you bring that up because it's a lot of the hardware we work with these days is just building blocks on top of building blocks on top of building blocks of of designs that get borrowed from other designs from other designs. Um, so my my background, I, I study electrical engineering uh, with the emphasis on microelectronic communication. Um, so one of my professors, I think it was my junior year, um, we had a project where we had to design a better amplifier. And it was, you know, you have typically when you're building circuits, you could just drop in an amplifier that is already a, a spec piece of, uh, you know, yeah. hardware essentially for your, uh, for your circuit. 
And he said, no, like you're, you're not allowed to use an existing amplifier. You need to design a new one. Yeah. And that was like, it just like blew our minds because <laughs> at that moment, like we had to like stop using building blocks that other people gave us. And we really had to start at the low level. You have capacitors, inductors, and resistors. Good luck. Yes. Um, th those are the, you know, those are the ways we are going to work with the, the um, you know, the, the electricity. Uh, so, you know, from, from there, you know, then, you know, we're work, working with capacitors and inductors and we're building different like tank circuits and we're using like the different building blocks of logic that we understand. Um, and, and doing that type of design at that level and then working all the way back up to an actual hardware product, um, I feel like is, is becoming a lost art. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, uh, and uh, it's a shame, I, I hope. I hope something reverses that course. I have a feeling that a lot of the people doing that level work are now in China. Um, yes. I mean, somebody still has to do that work, right? And I think, I think a lot of that stuff, and I'm sure, you know, Intel has some some great like low level chip designers, and as does Nvidia, as does, and they're they're scattered all over the world. But um, I don't, I don't think in our typical curriculum or teaching that, and and under, and and there's there's the direct effect of that and then there's also the the thought process that goes with it you know building yeah. building the logic in your own head about how to construct something that you can apply to almost almost anything yeah so it's a, it's a whole different level of engineering um i remember reading articles by uh I, I, it was it was this gal that was she had like a doctorate in engineering and she she started reading through a lot of old patent applications from like the early 1900s and and the the a title of these articles were like forgotten technology essentially uh, technology at the turn of the century where people were tinkering with all these different you know newly discovered electrical elements um, that you know Tesla was was coming out with all his patents and all the things he was discovering. Uh, Edison Labs was coming out with a lot of things they were discovering, um, but there were so many patents uh, in the, the electrical world at the time, but there were so many different technologies around uh, electromagnetics, um, around uh, EMAG fields and all that. Um, and so she started actually doing deep dives into forgotten technology, that stuff that didn't get included in the original building blocks um, yeah. of our electrical circuits. And then we just don't even realize they exist anymore. And it was absolutely fascinating that there's, there's so many inventions and so many technologies that could be in building blocks that just got left out back in the fifties and sixties. And we don't even utilize this stuff anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because uh, for, for those of you who haven't ever been involved in the patent process, there's several issues that the, the patent database is basically just that it's just a massive database of millions mm -hmm. of patents. And, um, this, you can use this search engine to kind of plow through there, but you got to come up with the right terms to even find what you're looking for. And yeah. then once you get there, what you'll realize is that the patent language is is not really English. It's it's um, even for a person like myself that that has been exposed to it. If you you can plop down a uh, my actual patent application. And I would have a difficult time reading it. And I have several patents. <laughs> and the reason yeah. is that I take my idea, we, we establish that it's an idea, and it goes to a patent agent or a patent attorney who then turns it into the text that becomes the patent. And it's, it's not 
very similar to what I wrote. And so, yeah, I, I think I wrote uh, a paragraph for Patton that was like this. And when I got it back from the lawyer, it was like this. And I was yep. like, that, that, okay, I'm going to trust exactly. you on that one. Like that it says the same thing. Exactly. You yeah. got to really pay attention to the diagrams because um, that, that visual is actually pretty good. Um, yeah. You know, I give, I give an example. Um, I'll, I'll uh, share the story with you. I, um, while I was working for Gateway, um, I developed a patent that is used wildly, widely across the world everywhere today. And that's that um, if you are, are playing music and, uh, or any sort of audio or video stream and you unplug the headphones or you take out your, your earbuds and the stream stops, that's my patent that to detect that that occurred and then the stopped voltage drop yeah. and then restarted, of course, if you plug it back in. Yeah. And there's a whole reason why I developed that patent, which I know it sounds probably obvious and trivial now, but in what would have been 2002 when I developed that patent. Um, but if you read that patent, you know, good luck, good luck figuring out that that's what, that's what's actually occurring. Um, and well, uh, so it, I think anyone like that saying, listens to audiobooks or podcasts then owes you their their gratitude because <laughs> uh, losing losing your place uh, when your headphones disconnect is yeah is terrible yeah yeah well there's a you know that's why by the way it was created so um, I guess I'm on a hard time frame today so we're the, in in uh, 2001 I was a chief technology officer at Gateway. And um, we were trying rapidly to expand beyond the PC. So we started developing things like digital cameras. And um, this is pre-iPod. We said, hey, let's, let's do our own MP3 player. So we were in beta testing. We finally got it working. We're beta testing it. And I do do some running. Um, just a job, you know, not, not a serious competitive running, but I run several times a week. And at that time, of course, we only had the old um, corded earbuds. And we didn't even have things like a, a nice little sleeve to hold your your thing. And those weren't those weren't created yet because there's really like no other of these products in the market. So anyway, I'm running along. I got this cord that's too long. And every once in a while, my my elbow would catch the cord and rip the earbuds out of my ear and the, the thing out. And at yep. that time, all I could listen to, the main thing I was listening to when I ran, still do today, is audiobooks and podcasts. And so what would ha what happened to me a couple of times was I'm listening to the audiobook. I rip the cord out. The thing goes flying. By the time I get the thing reassembled and put in my ear, the audiobook you was like two place. minutes ahead. And we yeah. didn't have back then, we didn't even have a fancy rewind or anything. Like there was yeah. we hadn't invented that yet. So I was like <laughs> so frustrated, like shit, I just missed this part of the book. And then I guess the engineer in me said, Well, of course I can detect that the from the impedance that the 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 um the cords disconnected yeah, yeah so yeah. why don't i just stop <laughs> like, yeah and that was it so you know nice. there you go i mean well, well thank you for inventing that because uh it's <laughs> it's very oh, you're very helpful um, you're welcome yeah and 
So, so. I, I haven't quite invented anything that, that useful yet. Um, I think a, a lot of the, the stuff that we're working on at Titan and, you know, the things that we're inventing are yeah. a little bit further down the road, but um, hopefully people appreciate them as much as that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad, you know, maybe whatever legacy I leave to the world, at least I got that. So, um, so well, hey, so, since we talked a little about Titan there, it's probably a good time. Um, let's introduce Titan to people a little bit. So, Tell, okay. tell us a little of the history of Titan and why you started it and what you guys are up to right now. And then we'll kind of dive down deeper into mining and pools and some yeah. Bitcoin stuff. So, so I'll, I'll start back kind of at, at, at the beginning um, where, you know, I, I got into mining in, in 2012 and it was, it was really, I was, I was working as a software engineer at a local university and one of my colleagues, Kyle, um, is you're just a brilliant software engineer and he heard about this thing called uh, bitcoin and he he was you know researching butterfly labs and researching all this you know different things about mining and we would go for walks on our break um every day just to regain some sanity from looking at code all day and he said hey ryan so i came across this thing called bitcoin it's this it's this digital cash i've been hearing a lot about it lately he's like but you can you can mine it and we're working in IT. We have access to all the computer labs. We have access to all the different types of hardware. Yeah. So he's like, you know, we should, you know, we should uh, see what we can do with these cryptocurrencies. Um, so we started building mining rigs from there. Um, from there, we we started realizing that there's a lot of altcoins, other ways to ROI on your equipment. So we started building hardware comparison, uh, sorry, uh, profitability comparisons between the different networks. Um, and uh, there. There's different iterations of the story based of how we got from where we were then to, to now. Um, the shortest the shortest iteration is um, I, I took a lot of this information and realized that a lot of these altcoins didn't have proper mining pools for them. Uh, so I launched a site called Pool Wars uh, back in 2013. Um, we ran about 100 different mining pools for a bunch of different altcoins. And I built uh, a lot of different automated systems around uh, customizable profit switching, uh, switching on difficulty targets, switching on uh, just coin targets, uh, just a lot of di different uh, elements of how you wanted to control your devices automatically. Um, and that was all built into this like really easy uh, one-click interface for mining. Um, so since then, uh, there have been uh, several iterations on Pool Wars through 2013, 14, and 15. The market was was way low at the time. I ended up uh, taking other software development contracts and kind of forgetting about Bitcoin for a while. Um, I had written a, a, a paper, a white paper uh, in 2014 that was a, a seamless, uh, how do I explain it? it? It was a way of scaling any network passively uh, for transaction throughput. And uh, I, I had called it QuickBit. And it was this idea of, of doing um, private key sharding and consens cl clustered consensus around private keys uh, to uh, to send transactions on parent networks. It was, it was essentially like a side chain um, item. So I, I'd written this paper in 2014. I was working on mining pools through 2015, um, took a hiatus until the market started coming back in 2017. And I, I dusted off the paper and went and presented it to Matt Rozak at the time and said, hey, what do you think about this? Because um, all my all, all my hypotheses about the Bitcoin network having transaction throughput issues and everything we had talked about in 2012 and 2013 was starting to come come out in 2017. Yeah. 
and people were realizing transaction fees are going through the roof. Um, the, the mempool backlog was crazy. And I was like, okay, well, maybe it's time to implement this. Um, talked to Matt about it. He saw my background in mining and mining pools. Um, and uh, that's when I joined Block and we launched Titan. Um, and, and the vision of Titan from the beginning was to make mining as, as easy as possible at any scale. Uh, so we started out actually doing mining management software and our very first client out of the gate uh, for mining management software had about 25,000 devices. Uh, so we, we jumped in literally uh, <laughs> wow. head, head first um, and, we, and we quickly realized uh, there were a lot of uh, issues with doing granular control of 25,000 devices uh, on a network um, where we were doing real-time chip clocking based on um, heat targets. So we knew that um, you know, we could, uh, we could up the, the frequency of the chips, um, you know, at 20, 25 megahertz at a time until we hurt, uh, hit a stable heat target. Um, and if we went beyond that, then we'd start downclocking it a little bit and we would basically balance, uh, around the, the heat of the chip to make sure you don't burn out your devices, but you get the most, uh, hash rate out of them. Um, and we were doing that real time for 25,000 devices. Uh, that puts a, a tremendous load on a local network. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, we learned a lot of very important lessons uh, through the course <laughs> of, of building, building the software. Um, now, a lot of those lessons we, we started seeing about uh, two, two and a half years ago, we started seeing a, a, a huge need in the, the U.S. market um, for compliant, transparent and auditable mining pools. Um, we saw a lot of miners going public. We saw a lot of miners here in the U.S. growing. We heard uh, talks uh, in China that, you know, the, the Chinese government didn't like the, the strain on their grid with the miners. And we just we just saw the writing on the wall that the U.S. was going to become more and more of a hot spot, hot spot for mining. Um, even with just the, the way the, the Texas grids work, um, we, we just saw that uh, eventually more and more miners were going to start converging in the U.S., um, so the, the U.S. mining pool was going to be a, a, a big deal. Um, and that's when we took a step back from the management software about two years ago. Um, our CTO at the time, Jethro Grassi, is an amazing pool engineer. He, he wrote actually the leading implementation of the Monero mining pool um, from scratch. Uh, so we set to work on writing a brand new Bitcoin mining pool uh, from the ground up. So we didn't, we didn't fork any uh, existing code bases. We didn't borrow any building blocks uh, from other excellent, people. Excellent, excellent. Um, we we literally wrote um, brand new software that was highly optimized. Um, so it's it's uh, all written in C. It's uh, incredibly fast, um, incredibly stable, and the way we built our architecture was it was scalable um, and designed to be an in-facility mining pool. Um, so you could actually so. For a publicly traded company where they start having uh, multiple sites all over the country, depending on where their electricity contracts are, um, they're going to want to eventually uh, run their own mining pool for compliance reasons. Um, so we see this, this flight path. So we actually built our pool architecture to be a series of uh, downstream pools with a single upstream pool. Um, so you can actually put a mining pool server in each one of your facilities. You can completely cut out latency. Um, you have 100% uptime of your pool as long as you manage your own network correctly. Um, and then you can turn off things like share validation. So it takes a lot of the overhead of a mining pool uh, off the table. Now you have some of the fastest optimized uh, software running directly in your facility. Um, so, so I think there's a lot there, Ryan. And maybe we yeah. should stop and just uh, for 
Uh, I think generally have a very technical audience, but I think some of them are going to want to understand some of this a little more, okay. including me. So, yeah. so let's talk about um, the uh, like like you talked about maybe having, if I got it right, you know, separate pools at separate sites, and you talked about uh, for compliance reasons. I, I think I understand there. I want to talk about compliance yeah. in a little bit. Yeah. Um, um, and then you talked about the downstream pool too. So can you talk about kind of the interaction between those and that architecture? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the biggest lessons we learned when we were when we were writing management software was just the enormous amount of network load. Um, so you have internal chatter between the management software and the miners itself. And then you have a ton of outgoing connections. So when you have uh, 25,000 devices, each one uh, so, for example, like ant miners, they'll have uh, they'll have uh, pool one, pool two, and pool three in their interface. Well, it doesn't just connect with pool one and then the other two stay static. It actually sends out three connections, and it makes sure that pool one, pool two, and pool three um, can all connect. And then it just works on pool pool one, but the other two do have outgoing connections. So, if you have twenty five thousand devices, you actually have seventy five thousand outgoing connections. Um, so what a lot of miners will do, they'll ask for uh, a proxy or a mining proxy that will a lot of times um, either um, do the, the, the work packets locally on behalf of the pool to keep the, the, the load off of the pool for having 75,000 incoming connections and load off of the, the network of the miner having 75,000 outgoing connections. Um, or they'll do what's called like a data trunk um, where they'll take um, all incoming connections in the local network um, it will like round robin sample, and then it'll have one big outgoing trunk to the pool, and then the pool will untangle the trunk, and then you know uh, divvy out the work to the packets or to the the miners connections um, correctly. Um, so that that was a huge lesson that we learned was just this this idea of outgoing incoming connections, um, and that's when we realized like the 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 best model you could possibly have is to have a mining pool server directly in your facility. Um, then you don't have to worry about uh, um, a proxy server. You don't have to worry about uh, you know an outgoing connection trunk or, or any of this other overhead. Um, you can actually just mine directly against your own mining pool internally. Now, what, uh, what a downstream pool and an upstream pool have is the upstream pool is going to be the, the, the signing pool that actually has the, the wallet node, right? So... So when, when you find a block in your downstream pool, it's going to push it to your upstream pool uh, for, for signing. And then that hits, hits your distribution network. Um, but you know that's gonna happen on average once every 10 minutes. Uh, if you're really, really lucky, once every hour, if you're a huge miner, um, you know, more, more, most likely like once or twice a day for a large miner. Yeah. Um, so so that, that, that was the model that we had designed was having downstream pools in each of the facilities and then then having your your upstream pool be the signer so at what point uh if you've got a mining facility or mining operation of a certain size where where does that um forgive me if the terminology but the local mining pool server where where do you say hey i've got a thousand uh machines i've got a hundred machines i got 50 yeah. machines where where is it that you start saying well that this is so it it's yeah, it, it's up to kind of your tolerance for risk. Um, so if you're okay with hitting a block a month, um, then you could be somewhere in the 100 to 200 pet hash range. Um, you know, and 
for for 100 to 200 pet of hash, you're going to probably be hitting a block a week, honestly, um, on on average for mm -hmm. for luck for 100 luck. Um, now, if you if you want to wait a week to find out that you know something is wrong or your connection is off or whatever, you know that that's big risk for a lot lot of large scale miners. You know that's millions and millions of dollars at risk. Um, so most miners want to see one block every one to two days. Um, they don't they don't, don't want to go beyond 48 hours without a block. Otherwise, you know, you know, they're they're wasting time, they're wasting money. Um, so at that rate, you want to have over an X hash typically. Um, that that will comfortably get you a, at least a block every two days. Um, and then once you're hitting that uh, every one to two day target for your block, um, that's when you really have to start looking at, you know, what, what's your compliance risk with using a third party pool? Um, you know, if you're a publicly traded company, um, you need to make sure, and here in the U.S. primarily, um, you need to KYC AML, uh, you know, your, your uh, clients or who, who's buying your hash rate or who are you selling your hash rate to. Um, and that's, that's uh, really getting into uh, this idea of uh, who is your pool partner. Um, you know, you're technically selling your hash rate every 24 hours to an FTPS pool. They're buying their hash rate. You're bu they're buying your hash rate. They're generating Bitcoin or finding blocks with it and then paying you out every 24 hours for your hash rate. Um, and that's, it's, I don't know. I have, I have a whole sales cycle. Uh, and well, this I want to get there, but, um, uh, but, but before we do, yeah. um, so again, just for everybody's, um, kind of knowledge i'm gonna i'm gonna try my best to um uh maybe restate what you've said in a in a slightly different way but you tell me if you agree with it, it's factually correct so what ryan's saying is that if if you have a operation of a certain size um and let's say you own one exahash right now which would be about roughly one half of one percent of the world's uh computing power i'm saying 200 exa it would be Somewhere I'm, there, I'm yeah. rounding, right? I know it's a yeah, little yeah. more than that right now, but um, then you can expect if if you have all that hash dedicated to your own pool, then you would expect one half of one percent of the time to win a block, yeah. and um, which would be one two hundredth. And given that there are typically uh, 144 blocks in a day. Actually, it's, it's actually the average I, I've calculated is actually closer to like 148 or something like that, because we typically run a little hotter. But yeah. basically, so what Ryan's saying is you would win about roughly between every one to two days then, right? Because you win one two hundredth. And he, he, he used the term your luck factor. He's basically <laughs> saying your your luck factor is how close you come to that norm, right? So you normally win one to two days. But as anybody knows, this is a or not everybody knows, but it's a random event, much like flipping a coin. And so you could you could theoretically flip a coin and get ten heads in a row. And if that associated with a loss, then you could have a really bad run of bad luck and yeah. and be collecting no uh, revenue in that in that time period. And and it doesn't mean that by the way, when you finally win it that you win enough to make up for the whole thing. You've, you know, that you, you're now, it's now like the next coin toss, meaning, you know, you, you, you will over, if you can stay with it over an extended period of time, it, the, they will return to the mean, but that could be a very long time. 
that yeah that's the that that is the general assumption we have is that over time statistics will will be true and balance out right so uh, for Bitcoin mining profitability, the the assumption and tribal knowledge is that if you mine long long enough with consistency, that you will hit a thousand or sorry a hundred percent profitability. Um, and sometimes you'll be more profitable. Sometimes you'll be less profitable with like luck factor. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of other elements in like the the quantum mechanic uh, principles of like uh positive thinking and all this other stuff that might affect <laughs> things yeah um but you know so but mathematically yes like uh over time statistics for mining should be 100 percent profitability um yeah yeah but so. but you know it's like you said like anything the path to getting there could be very rocky it could be yeah and by the the opposite is true. You could have massive prosperity for a given period of time too. You know, our our mining pool, for example, like we were running something small, like fifteen petahashes uh, when we were in test mode, um, and this was uh, earlier this year, I think, uh, back in February. Uh, we we were doing some internal testing. We had fifteen petahashes against the pool, and we hit two blocks in one day, uh, wow. running fifteen petahashes. And wow. it was like the, 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 odd, the odds were just incredible. And like right then I was like, okay, we should just shut it off. Like, shut it down. It'll never be better. We're done. We're like, that's as lucky as we're going to get. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, and then, you know, running 200 petahashes, we might, you know, not hit a block for two weeks, you know, when we should have hit a block, you know, one per week. So over time, the idea is, yeah, uh, over the next year, we should hit 100% luck. Um, but it doesn't always doesn't always play out like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Hence the life of a miner. Now, yep. um, you started to talk about, and I and I I'd, I'd love to see if because you do this probably more frequently than me. Um, maybe walk people through FPPS, PPS, PPLNS, PPLNS yeah. plus. You know all oh. all of those sorts <laughs> of things. Let's let's do your best to give us uh, ninety seconds on so, that. The the funny thing about this is these are like unofficial terms that have kind of developed over the past decade, um, and not everyone adheres to the same definitions. Uh, and we we've kind of landed on on general definitions, but like it's kind of like uh, this democratic process where um, some pools uh, over in Asia might have a slight definition uh, or. Uh, difference between what what a U.S. pool might have. Oh, oh uh, I, I want to interject. I'm sorry. So, yeah. what we're, what I'm asking Ryan about is the there are different methods by which, yep, uh, pool pool um, contributors, people who, mm-hmm. who attach themselves to a pool, generate income from the pool itself. And there's different so, payout philosophies. Yeah, let, let me let me walk through the the different payout philosophies that I've seen, and I know there there's twists on some of them, but. So traditionally, the, the first one was like PPLNS was essentially in, in common terms is um, you don't get paid until I get paid type thing. So it's when the pool finds a block, then based on how much difficulty you have sent that pool over the last 24 hours or however long that, um, that stage was between the last block and the current block, um, all that effort then is divided up in ratio uh, to the miners. Um, the problem with that is you don't get consistent payouts unless it's a really big pool. So that's PPLNS is a pay per last number of shares. 
Um, so this idea that you have a block round. So the, the last block was the start of the round. The, the next block is the end of the round. And then all the effort uh, submitted by all the miners between the, here and here um, gets divided up in ratio. Um, there's something called like a PPLNS plus or PPS plus. So PPS is uh, pay per share. It's the idea of you're going to get paid out um, per share, uh, regardless if they find a block or not. This was developed to help give more consistent payouts to miners every 24 hours. Um, that's typically done based off of a profitability calculation of the, the previous difficulty of the, of the previous block. Um, so it's, it's a guesstimate. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty good guesstimate. And like we said, over time, it should statistically be 100% profitability. Um, but that had to been that had to be differentiated then from uh, FPPS, FPPS, which is full pay per share, because that's when miners started or sorry, pools started doing a little bit of gaming stuff where they started saying, well, we'll pay you out for the block reward, but we're not sharing the transaction fees with you. So a lot of pools early on were actually keeping the transaction fees for themselves. Um, and then they were just paying out on the block reward. So then other pools came out and said, well, we're full pay per share. We're paying out. Uh, all the transaction fees plus the block reward, and we're putting all that together. Um, the, there's, there's other um, payout methods of if you're the miner that actually finds the block, you get a bonus. Um, if, uh, you know, if, if you're uh, mining with the pool for, for longer, then sometimes you get like a weighted bonus. Um, there's so many different payout methods and, and different uh, ways that pools will do it. But the, the general ones you'll see now are... Um, or FPPS, which is full paper share, where they, they put everything together. So most of the leading mining pools right now um, are FPPS. Uh, PPLNS um, will be a, it is also a common one with some of the older pools. Um, and the difference you'll see between uh, PPLNS uh, payouts and FPPS payouts is a different mining fee. Um, so historically, uh, PPLNS, because it's a greater risk, um, it will be a lower mining fee than an FPPS payout. Um, and that's just because you, you don't get the, the security of getting paid out every 24 hours. Yeah, that consistency. And, you know, as as a miner, this is a debate we have inside our own organization consistently is, you know, how yeah. much risk. And interestingly, I think now that we're in this environment of very low Bitcoin price, a lot of hash added on, it's compressed margins a lot for us. And so yeah. it's a really interesting debate because, you know, we're we're running very lean. Um, and that extra margin would look really good. But then again, uh, if we have that really bad run of luck, um, collectively with the pool that could impact our ability to pay bills. And you know, yeah. those are, those are, so this is an interesting thing about the margins because we were mining profitably in, in 2013 when it was, you know, $300 Bitcoin. Um, we were mining profitability in 2014 when we bottomed out at like a $100 Bitcoin. Um, we were still mining profitably through 2015. Um, the, and the, the OPEX really hasn't changed. I mean, it's not necessarily more expensive to run a facility today than it was back then. Uh, power costs has actually been pretty consistent, if not actually cheaper now with new re renewable technologies have come out to help supplement. Um, what the trend I've seen actually is the hardware manufacturers are the ones that are are um, closing down that margin. Um, so I, I've always find it interesting that uh, so historically we watched Bitmain was targeting about a 90 day ROI um, based on profitability calculations. 
And then as uh, the network started going up in value and more and more people started flooding into the mining space, they started uh, realizing they could sell at like 120 day ROI, 150 day ROI, 200 day ROI, 300 day ROI. And, and now it's, I think, uh, four or 500 day ROI. It's well north then, of a year. Yeah. Well, north yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's popularity and the, the hardware manufacturers realizing they can just keep charging more and more for the product. Um, and so now what we're seeing is a lot of miners that uh, came online in the past like, year or two under these contracts with some of the major hardware manufacturers, um, they're overpaying for their equipment. And now their, their margins are getting crunched because uh, between their expensive hardware, their expensive power contracts, or the, the hosting facilities that they're in, um, if it's costing them you know, $15,000 to generate a Bitcoin and they're able to sell for $20,000, like, is it, is it really you know, providing that much uh, of a margin for them? So uh, I, I've got mixed feelings about uh, how the hardware manufacturers have been doing things, but it's well. I, mean, I think that you know what we what we have right now in the mining hardware world is uh, something analogous to an oligopoly, mm -hmm. where I mean, at the moment there are really only two material providers of equipment: yeah. MicroBT and and Bitmain. There are a, a small number of external companies. We've worked with uh, Bitfury, for instance, a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But and in reality, those those two have driven the market. And um, I think, like anything, um, competition competition will help. And and uh, you know, Intel's entrance into the market is very interesting to me and, and exciting in a weird sort of way because i used to look at them as a pc guy they they were essentially a monopoly and i had a level hate relationship with them uh in that world i had great relationships with the people there we did a lot of business with them but i would often get frustrated because if if i didn't like what they were doing as a pc designer even as somebody buying millions of chips a year i didn't have a choice I was like, well, yeah. I got to I got to take this deal. I have to take this technology. I have to sign on for these terms. And that would sometimes be frustrating. It's yep. it's it's kind of a weird thing for me because I now see them as kind of a white knight as they come in <laughs> to this industry to yep. to be the one that kind of can can break it. So I, I'm I'm anxious to see what happens in 2023 when a large company comes in with massive resources um, with technology that it's at least, at least in the ballpark in the first generation and see what does it do? How does it, how does it change this infrastructure? Um, the PC industry, which I grew up in, went through a massive sorting out period. And one of the things I've said many times is that I think when we look at the large players within our industry, by the way, whether that's at the hardware level, whether that's the mining companies, whether that's the pool operators, that massive changes can take place in, let's say, the space of three years. Um, yep. We saw that in the personal computer industry. And we've seen that in, in the mining pool industry. We've seen Foundry essentially go from nothing to a really large player. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but um, essentially overnight. Um, yeah. And so 
things things can happen and they will happen and they're unpredictable. Um, so uh, I guess we don't know what's going to happen, but the you know in, in 2023 yeah. is going to be interesting. Intel's coming so, in. Um, we'll see what happens with price. I think we're going to start feeling the having. The having mm-hmm. will start to feel it. Like it's not it's not going to be in 2023, oh, but we'll feel it. No, people are going to start pricing it in early because they they've seen the same. They've seen the same pattern, you know, three or four times in a row now. Um, people are going to try to get ahead of it. Um, so I, I think we're going to see a, an effect from the happening long before the happening comes into play. Um, but to your point, I'm, I'm encouraged to see what Intel is doing. Um, we thought Samsung was getting in uh, early years ago when they were talking about the, the different nanometer chips that and the different technology that they were working on. Um, I'm really curious how that's going to play out. Um, what, you know, and th- this is almost segue, segueing into a whole different discussion, but um, we're really going to start seeing the, the, the power producers and the energy companies globally. And I think we already have uh, start uh, paying more attention to Bitcoin mining as really a, a hedge against uh, balancing power grids. Um, so this was a discussion that I've had actually lots and lots over the last uh, couple years. And I actually spoke at uh, spoke on it, um, I think it was two years ago uh, at Bitcoin Miami, was this idea that, that So I actually talked about this uh, a few years ago at Bitcoin Miami. And it's this idea that uh, Bitcoin mining or like proof of work mining in general is really the only way we're ever going to be able to balance um, at scale renewable energy grids. Um, and it's this idea that uh, currently with power production, we're doing with, <laughs> sorry, we've got a <laughs> okay. uh, dog's barking now. Um, so what we typically see with uh, at-scale energy grids uh, for renewables uh, is what we would typically do what's called load following. So we would ramp up and ramp down production based on uh, energy usage. Um, and this is, this is why we needed things like a fossil fuel, uh, nuclear energy, uh, di- different plants that could be easily ramped up and ramped down depending on if people had their AC units running or not. Um, the problem with doing renewable energy is when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, you're producing electricity and it's either on or off. You're not uh, ramping up and ramping down to uh, match load. Um, so what we can actually do is we can build um, a, a facility, um, sorry, uh, a energy grid that's 100% renewable, that's fully on for peak load. Um, and, I, and the example I used was out in the Palm Springs desert this idea that we could uh, build a solar and wind farm that could take 100% of the load of Southern California 100% of the time. So when the sun is shining, the wind is blowing and everyone's running their AC units in the summer, all that electricity is being used up um, in all the residential and businesses. But then in the winter, when the the, um, energy usage is way low because people don't need their AC units all of a sudden and and power consumption is at all time low, um, but the sun is still shining in Southern California and the wind is still blowing, you're still generating a crazy amount of electricity, that needs to go somewhere. Yeah. And if only we knew of a, a, uh, a network or a technology that could use so much electricity and actually pay you for it, um, 
you know, it, it would solve the problem. And, and thankfully, it's, it's actually the, the only answer we've come up with so far to, to balance the energy grid is uh, doing production following rather than load following um, with, uh, with Bitcoin mining. So we are, we've already seen some large scale miners doing this with local energy grids um, to, to turn off uh, miners when load goes up um, on the grid. Uh, so we're already we're already doing this um, on on small scales, um, and I, I think that's that's a message that needs to be spread a little bit more. That we're not just burning electricity to get coins. Um, we're not you know this this crazy energy waster. We're actually building a technology that will allow for renewable grids to actually work at scale. Yeah, it's a shame that I think we're as an industry behind in the narrative. And some of the people who, if, if, if their apparent uh, perspective on the world, whether that's for climate change, whether that's for um, uh, certain freedom, income disparity, like all, there's all these different things. I think, unfortunately, a lot of those people often categorized as progressives really understood Bitcoin. There'd be a whole bunch of them more in the camp but they've yeah. they've they've um often put up a fence already and now we have to break down and overcome and and yeah. you know that's really unfortunate um um somewhat predictable frankly because um in reality what they're what they're professing or what they're supporting even if they're even if their core belief is is um true like save the world reduce poverty etc they're aligning with a group that's true motives are opposite of that they're 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 centrally controlled and um yeah. you know they're not going to share wealth and i don't think they give a crap about climate change but the the um so that's that's partly what we have to overcome i i've i've joined a group called satoshi action fund um, oh, nice. trying to do that myself. Uh, obviously you are, are trying to educate, um, as well, but, um, it's going to be quite a battle. You know, and, and it's crazy because no, no one's out there saying like, let the world burn. No one's out there saying, let the children starve. Like no one, no one like wants to see these bad things happen. We're, we're all kind of on the same team of, we want to see the, the world have renewable energy, renewable resources. We want to see, uh, civilizations grow and prosper and people to to be healthy and live comfortably right so we're, we're all on the same side of we, we think we're doing good um, but I always I always feel like it's it's this idea of stage one stage two and stage three thinking and I feel like a lot of people that have really good um, motives they stop at stage one thinking they think uh, I see a therefore b but they 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 quickly, but a lot of people don't realize that, okay, but UCA and that means B, but you're ignoring C, D, E, and F, which are also uh, reasons for things happening. Um, and that's, that's a whole yeah. deeper uh, philosophical discussion. Right. And, um, and they're falling for, uh, you know, the, the typical things like, well, just because you consume energy, um, it, you know, it is therefore resulting in this carbon thing, this this increased carbon footprint, and and then that results in 
in this other thing. Um, and, and by the way, it usually starts from the premise that what we are doing is of no value. That's the other thing, because, um, you know, they, they haven't taken the time to understand the root cause of so many of these problems is money being broken and we're trying to fix the money. (laughs) Oh, you're going to get me started now. (laughs) Um, so a couple thoughts, um, so one, when I get in discussions with people about, uh, you know, re- renewable energy and like sustainability, um, the, the false premise that a lot of these discussions start on are using electricity is bad. Yeah. Um, and then my question is, well, why is using electricity bad? Well, because in their mind, generating electricity is bad for the environment. I say, okay, well, let's dive into that. Why is generating electricity bad for the environment? And when you start untangling all these like false assumptions, yeah you realize that you're starting the discussion on a completely false premise um, that using electricity is bad or producing electricity is bad or producing electricity is um, bad for the environment. Um, When you actually start untangling a lot of that um, and you get down to like a actual factual premise to start the conversation from, then a lot of their, their um, arguments are gone because they're, they're actually starting up here with like layers and layers and layers of assumptions yeah. Um, without any understanding of how an actual basic electricity grid works. Yeah, um, that's actually very true. You know, there's a there's a, a way to approach this on the other end of the spectrum too that I take sometimes. And uh, I, I like what you've said. I mean, we can talk about, you know, grid stability, demand response, um, enabling um, the development of renewables. If you're into that, well, this is the right way to develop them. There's all that sort of stuff I agree with. But then there's the other end of the spectrum which I believe is at least equally important, which is, um, I don't know, somewhere within a few feet of me are about six outlets. And I view it as my fundamental right to plug into any of those outlets, whatever I want, as long as I pay for it. Mm-hmm. And in other words, that's a, it's a, a personal liberty. And that inside the walls of my my home or my business, as long as I'm not doing anything that causes harm to other people or, or is illegal, I can do whatever the heck I want. And, and that can be a blow dryer. It can be a microwave oven. It can be a hot water heater. And, I, and, and, uh, and it could be a Bitcoin miner or a Bitcoin node. And so I think people should be very careful about what they ask for, even if you're on that side, about saying Bitcoin mining should be banned because... What you've what you're doing is you're opening Pandora's box to societal judgment, government judgment about all of your consumption of electricity. And like for me, I will I will give up hot water and microwaves and Christmas lights and several other electronic consumption things in my life before I would give up Bitcoin mining. Yeah. Because I believe it because of my beliefs right and and so no you're 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 exactly right like once you start regulating the use of a utility in a a moral judgmental way i mean it it just it's pandora's box you're exactly right and um and i wanted so my the second point and second thought i had and it kind of touches on something you said before that was uh this idea of value and utility in what we're doing 
Um, a lot of people don't understand the need for Bitcoin until they've had a very, very negative interaction with our banking system or identity systems. Um, and once you start, like once you've been involved in a SIM swap attack, you quickly realize that your phone number does not belong to you. And a lot of your identity revolves around your phone number. Uh, when you're involved in ACH fraud, you'll quickly realize that you have very little control over who reaches into your bank account and takes out money and how secure your actual banking is. Um, now, I've had the, the absolute pleasure of being involved in, uh, <laughs> in, the, in those two scenarios actually quite a bit in my life, oh my unfortunately. And, and, you know, I've had, I mean, just in the last six months, to give you an idea, I've had three of my business bank accounts uh, hacked into for ACH fraud. Um, wow. and my personal account. So, you know, when you become a target and someone, you know, gets your, you know, information, then the, the rails and the current systems, um, in place, um, you quickly realize look like a piece of Swiss cheese. Um, and, wow. and they're incredibly exploitable. Um, and then you, you start looking at, well, there's gotta be a better way. Um, and then you start looking at things like stable coins and Web3 and, and Bitcoin cold storage and, and other uh, decentralized means of banking. And it actually gives the power back to the individual for controlling not only your identity, but your banking, your personal wealth um, and uh, your data. So, you know, the, the technology we're working on and, the, and uh, the, the security route being Bitcoin and mining being the, the, the very thing that backs the ecosystem, it's so incredibly important. Um, and most people will not understand that until they have the IRS freeze their account or they have someone um, steal their social security number from a data leak and then all of a sudden start hacking into their bank accounts or steal their cell phone number. Um, until people are actually personally affected by this, uh, a lot of people just they, they just want to toe the line and you know talk on platitudes. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I've already mentioned today. I'm um, I just went through a hurricane. Well, yeah. if you're the best time to be in a salesman for hurricane insurance or flood insurance is right <laughs> after one hit. And yep. so I think it's you're a believer. Same thing there like you get it man you get what happens yeah. and why those you know whether that's security or insurance why those things exist when they happen to you and that's why i've often said um i've i've spent a lot of time well outside the u.s a lot of time in second third world countries my wife is from a from the philippines uh, typically would be considered a third world country and when you understand what it's like to live in those countries with those kind of financial systems you live in Lebanon right now, if you live in Zimbabwe or Argentina or a place like that, you get why there's so much attraction to um, to Bitcoin specifically, because the things that you might think about, like oh, it's very volatile relative to the dollar. Well, hell, that's that's in the on the decision tree of what's important. That's way the hell down on the list. That was the joke like uh, in South America and I think it was like Argentina where people were actually buying used cars because um, holding used cars was actually more stable than holding the, the governmental currency. Um, I hadn't heard that so, make sense though. So we, we, we see people like scrambling and, and even like right now in our current economy, right? We see uh, interest rates going up here in the U.S. We see the U.S. dollar, dollar actually becoming stronger on the global currency stage. 
And we see people really evaluating their holdings and where their you know, investment bankers are putting their money um, on, a, on a global scene. And we're realizing that um, governmental currencies are just as volatile and manipulated as anything else um, in the economies. Um, so we're looking for a better system. We're looking for a way to detach ourselves from um, governmental control of our identity and our currency. And that's uh, honestly at Titan and uh, the project we're working on Lumeran, I'd love to touch on that too, um, is what we're, what we're hyper-focused on is making a better system. Awesome. Well, I, I, I think I, I do want to get to all those things, a deeper dive into Titan and to whatever uh, Lumen you said. Um, uh, Lumeran, yeah. Lumeran. Um, yeah. But let me ask you something since we're talking about custody. Um, yeah. So we had uh, six weeks or so ago in, in the mining world, uh, Poolin, uh, which is one of, for those of you less familiar, one of the larger pools in the world. Um, yeah suddenly stopped allowing withdrawals. So, yeah. um, and, and just to set a little bit, so real, real high level, if you're a miner uh, and you're mining with a pool, you generally, generally set some thresholds, um, uh, usually based on an amount, but maybe based on a time or whatever. And you say, well, every time I reach a 10th of a Bitcoin or a half a Bitcoin or whatever it is for your scale, um, or maybe it's once a day, I'm just going to dump out of the pool and take whatever I'm, whatever, whatever I'm due. Um, now, I, I think that's what a lot do. I actually have a question for you about how frequently people really do that. I don't really know. Yeah. I know what I do. Um, well, but yeah. maybe you could talk, tell people about the pooling situation and, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll just let you go. So I, I don't have a lot of behind the scenes of like, like why pooling did what they did. Um, and we know what they publicly announced um, for the reasons um, but it highlighted very clearly to a lot, a lot of large miners, the importance of the, the phrase, uh, you know, not, what was it? Uh, not your not keys, your keys not, your not your coins. Your yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of people learned that with Celsius earlier this year. A lot of people learned that with uh, several other projects. Um, and now the miners learned it with Poolin because this is kind of unheard of. We haven't seen a pool do this before. And if, I mean, it has, I'm, I'm not aware of it. And obviously I don't know everything that's going on in the ecosystem. Yeah. So it could have happened. Um, but Poolin is a very large pool. It's uh, very well known and it's been around for quite a while. And for them to do something like this, I think it really shook uh, shook the foundation of a lot of the miners um, and kind of made them sit up a little straighter. Um, and honestly, it, it made our pools look a lot better because we sure. don't custody funds. Um, you know, we've been mining for a very long time. I, you know, I've been doing this since 2012. It's not as long as you know a lot of people in the space, but uh, it's long enough to, to have learned some really hard lessons. And one of them is you don't custody funds because the moment you start custodying funds, um, you become the trusted party in a trustless ecosystem. And that's exactly what you don't want to be. Um, the whole reason why we're mining, the whole reason why we believe in Bitcoin and we're back in the ecosystem is because it is decentralized. It is trustless. And the moment you have a third party like a pool um, that becomes a trusted uh, single point of failure for a miner, um, that's a, a huge risk. Um, so, and, and this is, this is part of, you know, the discussions I'll have with large miners when they're looking at doing a private mining pool 
um, all I have to do is point at things like Poland. I have to point at things like Celsius. And I say, you know, you're a publicly traded company. Um, you know, how much risk are you willing to take with your, your, you know, your income? So a, a lot of times uh, people think, uh, well, let me, let me put it like this. I often refer to, to miners as the most paranoid people in the space and the most trusting people in the space. And, and they're the same people. Like you'll, you'll talk to a, a person about, you know, their, their crypto wallets and their security and their, their ledgers and all, you know, all the different things around treasury management. And, and they're, they're so paranoid about certain aspects of their network security and their data and all these things around their mining operations. Yep. And yet they're trusting a mining pool overseas. A lot of them uh, used to be in China. Um, with their sole source of revenue so so in the very act of yeah. being very very paranoid they're also like trusting someone far beyond what they should ever trust someone with their revenue and i think the people mining against pulling figured that out very quickly so um maybe to expand on that a little bit i think what you're saying is that uh, that obviously we don't want to violate any confidences but there may be a lot of miners of significance who are using only one mining pool for everything um, or very um, few? Yeah. So and th this is, this is something that um, we've seen develop over the last few years. And this is a business model that some of the newer pools have taken into account was they would negotiate really, really low fees with large miners. And in exchange for those low fees, the miners would sign a contract. So a miner would say, you know, I'll, I'll mine for a 0.4% fee with you and we'll be locked into that for the next year or two, right? Um, the problem is like now they're locked into that single point of failure. They're locked into that single pool. Um, other miners would negotiate that with a portion of their facility. So they'll say, they'll divide their facility in thirds and they'll say this, this third mines against this pool and they'll do that three different ways and they'll use that as, as a hedge against risk. Um, other miners will have... Uh, uh, because the, the miners can take up to three pools, you know, sometimes they'll have contracts with one pool and then they'll have two backup pools. Um, but the two backup pools typically aren't nearly as good on terms or, you know, the, the negotiation because they're backups. Um, so they always will point towards that primary pool if they can. Um, so you're right that the majority of miners are mining against one pool the majority of the time. And that's the source of the revenue. That's the source of their funds. So that's, that's clearly a concern. Um, I would say, I mean, it's their business. They can do what they wish, but for us looking at the ecosystem, it seems to be a, a point of uh, exposure or fragility or, or, and, so what's interesting is, so you have a very technical background. Um, you've you've been on uh, software development, hardware development, like at scale, very public companies. So you know the value of um, security. You know you know the value of um, you know having uh, having uh, multiple partners in different areas areas. So you're not locked into this like single source of revenue, uh, which could be very problem problematic. Um, yeah. So you have a lot of experience uh, just in the technology realm. Uh, what we're seeing in mining is essentially, you know, we, we, we have a toaster, if you will, and we say, you plug this toaster in and it will print money for you. 
And we show that toaster to someone that uh, likes money and they're going to think, well, how many can I have and where can I put them? And if I don't have enough money to buy a bunch of those toasters, I'm going to go out to a bunch of my friends or investors. I'm going to raise enough money to buy a bunch of those toasters. And then I'm going to figure out where to put them. I promise a lot of these people aren't engineers. They're not highly technical. Um, a lot of them just are really good with finance, really good at raising money or just company building. And they'll get deliveries of these large, you know, large amounts of miners. And they'll either sit on the pallets because they're waiting for the technical side of the puzzle to show up, um, or they'll get things uh, plugged in and they think it's just plug it in and forget it. Um, they forget that there's a, you know, a huge hardware failure rate uh, in, in some of these models or uh, running a facility at this scale, um, you have issues with heat and noise. Um, so those are the, the major byproducts of, of mining is you're, you're essentially creating heat and noise in ridiculous amounts. Um, so you, you, have a, you have a highly technical, um, very niche uh, um, ecosystem, and you have a lot of money flooding into it because essentially the, the promo was plug this toaster in and print money. Yeah. Um, but, but now you have um, loads and loads of people that have been in the space for you know, years are now becoming consultants because uh we're, we're coming in and saying well let me show you how to keep these miners online and optimized let me show you how not to lose money mining and on the mining pool side that's that's kind of what we end up doing with some larger miners of hey this is how to properly manage a mining pool this is how to properly uh mine profitably with low risk um and uh, more and more that it, it's just a matter of education at this point I, I think so. I, I love the toaster analogy. I hadn't heard that one before. And, um, you know, I, I, I view the world through a technical lens first and foremost. And I, I see without naming names, I see that a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the overall network here in a little bit too. And a lot of topics I still want to try to hit with you, but, Absolutely. but I think that, um, that, 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 presents a risk um we've by the way done a little of this work ourselves even though we're a mining company we typically do our own work we've done some consulting work now ourselves um but i would say these are from very astute people who who understood that but were smart enough to say hey before i go build a site these are usually smaller scale sites before i go mm -hmm. build a site let me hire you to teach me how to build it and so we're happy to do that sort of work um and, yeah. and we have done some of that um, but, but I think a lot of people also, whatever they were, they were butchers, plumbers, accountants, whatever, and got into this. And, um, it's one thing to run four of them in your garage. It's, it's a completely different thing to do it at any sort of scale. And when you start playing with yeah. even what in our world, we throw around as small amounts of power, a few hundred kilowatts. Well, a few hundred kilowatts is a lot of freaking energy. You start yep. throwing around a megawatt, two megawatts, three megawatts. That's a lot of energy. It's a lot of heat. It's a lot of, um, you know, there's all kinds of things that require a, a lot of technical competence. And even as somebody coming from that world of designing computers, me and my team all came from, from that, we had a learning curve. Like we were yeah. still learning shit. So um, yeah. somebody, it's, uh, yeah. It, it's interesting because, um, the, 
you know, mining historically is like hitting rocks with hammers and pickaxes and you're, you're, you're digging in the earth, you're, you're, you're mining. And it's a, it's a very low technical thing. It's, and you want to extract as much um, out of the, the earth um, for as little cost as possible. And you, you keep your equipment as uh, lightweight, optimal, and you, you don't want it to break because you need it to last because the, the margins can be slim uh, depending on you know what you're mining. Um, the the, the um, analogy is, is so accurate you know with what we're doing because uh, every little detail of the way you design your facility could even either uh, help you out with your OpEx or become a huge hazard um, as you scale. Um, plugging in a couple devices uh, in your garage is one thing. Uh, having 25,000, 50,000, 100,000 devices um, is, you know, like I said, you, you produce heat and you produce noise. Um, well, one of these devices that's burning, you know, 3,500 watts. Uh, one of them is fine. 10,000 of them is a forest fire. So you're producing a ridiculous amount of heat. And, and a lot of the way, you know, data facilities are built um, and a lot of the engineering that goes into that, that's substantial cost. And a lot of miners try to avoid that cost because once again, we're in this mining mentality where margins are thin. Um, you want your equipment to last for a long time, but you also want to not break your budget on building a state-of-the-art uh, cooling facility. Yeah. Um, so uh, th there, there's this mix where some people are getting ahead of it and they're saying, well, we're going to do all liquid cooling and they, they, they pony up the upfront costs for liquid cooling, but then they run into firmware issues with the manufacturers because the manufacturers don't want you disassembling the products and submerging their chips. Um, yeah. it's, 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 taking it's a fans out, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's all those sorts of things. And, so. You know, I, I I think it's important. I don't know if I've said this before, at least in in, in on on this show. Um, so I will. When you read a story about somebody putting up, let's say, a two hundred megawatt facility or four hundred megawatt facility, I want to put that number in perspective because I think it's very easy. It's a lot like the national debt at thirty one trillion. I was just thinking that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we completely lose. Yeah, you of lose scale. perspective. So let me give you a little perspective. So I've done some work with El Salvador and the El Salvadoran government. Um, I, I've been public with this. I would love to do some mining down there. I haven't figured out quite how to do it yet, but I'm trying. So be on the side of a volcano. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. So, but. Um, I was sitting with the secretary of energy, the equivalent of the secretary of energy for the country of El Salvador. And I was talking to him about the possibility of buying energy from their country. The entire country of El Salvador, six and a half million people runs on 900 megawatts. It's a country of six, put that in perspective, six and a half million people, an entire country, all the industry, all the houses, Everything in the entire country is 900 megawatts. Yep. So when you hear about somebody even doing nine megawatts, okay, that's one one hundredth of an entire country in a facility. Yep. Okay. 900 kilowatts is one one thousandth of an entire country. That's a massive amount of money. That's why, or a massive amount of energy. That's why I think sometimes it's very easy to um, not 
for these numbers to kind of get thrown around um, and, and the danger that's associated with it. So, um, yeah, you know, it, <laughs> electricity is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, people forget about that. Um, I, I had the unique uh, experience of being able to intern at a nuclear power plant uh, for oh. a few summers while I was in college. You know, I, I got to see firsthand uh, going through their different um, programs and security programs and protection programs, uh, you know, how dangerous electricity can be, how, how uh, dangerous uh, nuclear radiation can be. Um, so I had a, a very, uh, very close look at all of that. You know, I've been inside of a nuclear reactor, you know, <laughs> I, I've gotten to see a lot of interesting things. Um, so the... Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. People just don't understand the scale um, at which things are being done. And, um, you know, so something like El Salvador, where you can power the entire country off of a, a small production plant, um, you know, where we have Bitcoin mining facilities that are taking up all the production of some of these uh, production plants. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, you know, I have, I have my thoughts. I think we'll kind of transition issue a little bit here, use this to kind of talk some about centralization risks and risks to the infrastructure and all that, which was actually the panel that you and I sat on together in Miami um, last spring. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'll preface it this way and, and maybe start with this. So I'm, a, I'm a designer um, and you're a designer and, you know, one of the things I'll share is that if you're trying to design something to be highly reliable for a long period of time, you have to design it with a massive amount of reliability. So as an example, um, if I was designing a laptop computer and I was at Gateway, we would sell probably about two and a half, three million laptops per year. And the most popular model was usually in the 800,000 to a million for that one model. Yeah. So if that, let's say the charging circuitry and the battery, since we're talking energy, were designed at 99% reliability uh, and safety for a year, mm -hmm. that means that 800 to 1,000 of those batteries are going to fail every year. Mm -hmm. It's not a very good number, right? And so if, if I designed to 99.99, I still got like that be that would be like eight to ten. Well, when the result is a potential fire or an explosion, that's still not a very good number. You got to design further than that. So we would design at uh, six nines, ninety nine point nine 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 or better. Like yeah. we had a design at that level for the useful life of that product. Well, when I look at the Bitcoin infrastructure, I say, well, we're building an ecosystem that includes the miners and the pools and the custody solutions and the whole thing. Okay. And it has to, it has to operate at that level. Certainly in the early days it didn't, but now it does. It has to operate at that level or better because we're trying to build something that will last for centuries. We're not trying to build something for next year. So you know, is the probability if we see a massive amount of centralization, whether that's in the mining itself, in the pools or whatever, 
you could probably say, well, in the next year, there's a small probability of something really bad happening. But extend that same thing to decades or centuries, and it's going to fail. Something's yeah. going to go wrong. Yeah, and it's it's hard because so the the flight path for you know these crypto networks you know it started out as a hobby you know when i when i got into it we were we were tinkering um it it moved into an industry people started showing up to our, our bitcoin meetup wearing suits and we're like wait what are, what are you doing here uh <laughs> you know what, what, what is that a tie um you know and and more lawyers started getting involved and i i I remember uh, feeling out of place at a conference in 2014 where it was all of a sudden people were wearing suits and I was like, what, what's going on? Wow. And we started moving into this like industry phase. Um, and now we're, we're, we're really on the verge if we're not already there of it being infrastructure. Um, and when something becomes infrastructure, uh, as you know, and uh, after a hurricane in Florida, infrastructure is very important. And when infrastructure goes down, it's incredibly disruptive. Uh, people's lives can be ruined without infrastructure. Um, so when we consider that we're building financial infrastructure, identity infrastructure, communication infrastructure, um, the reliability aspect of it is just incredibly important. And it, it's going to get to the point where um, people are relying on you know, Bitcoin or the equivalent network uh, for you know, access to food. You know, the, their, their daily sustenance is going to come through being able to access a crypto network. Um, I don't know if we're, we're not quite there yet. Maybe some countries are where people are yeah. paying, actively paying for stuff with stablecoin. Um, but it, it's, it's going to get there. Um, and we have to take that as a very, very serious thing. Um, we're, building, we're building an ecosystem. We're building infrastructure that has to be reliable, to your point. Yeah, and reliable historically i think people have leaned on things like 51 percent attack mm -hmm. but there are other ways that the network can be disruptive it doesn't necessarily mean that it fails maybe but it can be disrupted um there's an article i wrote called satoshi's heel which um it basically talks about a world in which there are only a handful of big elephant sized miners and mm -hmm. and we only have a couple places in the world where mining exists. And um, I'm not predicting it, but I'm saying it's a possibility. Um, I think maybe to get to pools, since we want to talk about Titan and pools a little more here, um, I, I pulled some stats. You can tell me if you think they're right, but I think they're pretty accurate. So oh, I, used, I, I know where this is going. I use yep. miningpoolstats.stream and btc.com. So I, I went to two yep. sites this morning. And so what I found was, um, in the last 30 days, there are only 15 named pools that have found a block, even one. Yeah. Um, somewhere on the order of two thirds of the blocks is over 60% were found by the top three. Yep. And, um, a quarter ish of the world's hash, maybe as much as 30% is owned by foundry. Now we don't really, yeah. So maybe I'll just stop there and let you comment. I mean, this, this is this is exactly what I brought up uh, in Miami yeah. on the panel we were on. Yeah. Um, it, this is like the the worst kept secret in the entire Bitcoin ecosystem when we want to talk about decentralization, is that uh, people 
assume that we have decentralization and 51% and, you know, oh, scary, you know, controlling hash rate. Uh, we're long past that. Um, you know, you, you literally have three decision makers to decide if there's going to be a protocol update, um, what transactions go into a block. And if, you know, those three decision makers decide to whitelist or blacklist certain addresses or certain accounts, there's nothing anyone can do about it. Um, and the reality is, is we wouldn't even realize that they're doing it until it's too late. So, you know, and, and I'm not saying that any one of these pools is doing this, but uh, any one of these pools could be censoring transactions right now. And we just have no idea. Right yeah. now, unless you want to get into forensics and actually look in the mempool and see like, oh, well, this this mem, you know, this transaction has high transaction fees and it's been sitting there for a long time. And, you know, one of these three pools is not picking it up. Um, you know, that could be a news story itself if it's happening, but that's the scary part. We're supposed yeah. to have a decentralized trustless ecosystem that is uncensorable and, and we've, we've sold it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's why we're doing Titan. That's why we're focused on a pro project called Lumeran. It's this idea of decentralizing the control of hash rate. Um, and the, the whole idea, of, so Lumeran is a decentralized routing network. It's this idea that uh, a seller and a buyer both run a, net, a, a Lumeran node and they stream data. Uh, the, the seller sells uh, whatever data stream and the buyer buys the data stream. And that um, engagement all happens through a smart contract. So it's, it's trustless, it's anonymous, it's decentralized. Um, and the, the routing information is all stored uh, in an encrypted form on a smart contract. So a buyer, sorry, a seller can post their hash rate for sale in a global decentralized marketplace. A buyer can purchase that hash rate uh, through a smart contract. And then the Lumeran node from the seller uh, transmits the hash rate to the buyer. And then the buyer can mine with it however they wish. Um, the vision is having a mining facility with 100,000 devices that can potentially be controlled by 100,000 different people in real time. And then they can vote on where they want to send their hash rate to rather than having a, a facility with 100,000 devices pointing it to one of the top three mining pools and that vote is, is done. Um, so the whole vision of the Lumer network is decentralizing the, the control of the hash rate um, as a, a, a way to propagate decentralization into the future. I think this is so important. Um, you know, you as you as you mentioned, um, you know, I've I've been talking about the miners themselves. You talked about it at the panel, and I and I think opened my eyes to this somewhat. It's part of why I wanted you on today. Um, theoretically, the top two, even in the right circumstances, top two mining pools could cooperate and do a fifty-one percent attack. The, yeah. the likelihood of that is infinitesimal because, by the way, I know especially the people at Foundry well, and I like the people at Foundry. I'm I'm happy yeah. for them to have success. I mean, I love people to success, but maybe there's too much of a good thing at some point too, when you know yeah. too much power kind of goes to one place. And I think what you brought up though, I think is the real crux of at least the most likely place where I think a quote unquote attack would occur, which is a whitelist blacklist it's a form of censorship and so just me mechanics um just to review for everybody so if you if you're trying to make a bitcoin transaction when it's in the pending stage 
it goes into the mempool. And um, pools can choose whatever transactions they want. They don't have to take the most recent or they don't have to take the most expensive. Um, and they don't have to take any at all. Or, yeah, uh, or they don't take any at all. Ant, Ant, Ant pool was accused of this uh, during the, the Bitcoin Cash uh, rollout where they started mining empty blocks. So yeah. it's... Yeah, it still yeah. happens too. I just noticed there's like 14 in the last 30 days or something like that, uh, 14 empty mm -hmm. blocks, something like that. Um, and sometimes it's really small. So maybe they just choose to to do an empty one. I'm not sure. I'd actually, I'd love to get into that a little bit with you, but I but I want to stay on the censorship thing for a minute. Yeah, yeah we so, can touch on that. So um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to be sure to people that like, just because you put a, just because you initiate a Bitcoin transaction, it doesn't mean it has to be taken. And and what could theoretically happen that Ryan's talking about more than theoretically happen, it can easily happen, um, is they can just let it sit there and by apathy, by just ignoring it, it can, you know, it can make your Bitcoin valueless because you can't move it. Yeah. You know, and so case in point, um, for better or worse, uh, you know, without getting into the geopolitical aspect of it, there's a war going on. And there is a country in the world that now has been black sheeped by every other country in the world. Um, and high net worth individuals in that country have been banned from banking, essentially, right? Now, in this hypothetical, I don't know if this is happening, but it could very well be happening, we don't even know, is a top mining pool could receive a list of addresses uh, and say you're not allowed to process a transaction from that list because, you know, this war is going on and uh, we don't support it. So it, it's a very well, it, 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 I mean, it's a, a very real scenario that could be happening right now. Um, and the, the scary thing is no one would even know except yeah. for the individuals getting uh, obviously affected by it. Yeah. And, and they have a strange situation like like well they there's one there's not a win 800 number to call or <laughs> like hey my, no. you know it's not like calling visa saying why won't this go through you know it's yeah. it's a very difficult thing and 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 then they essentially would have to reveal their identity to the world yep to that address to make a deal about it too to to yeah. say hey i'm, I'm is... trying to move four bitcoin from you know from this address and they won't let me and, and this very thing is against everything uh, most people in the Bitcoin ecosystem believe in. You know, the, the reason we, we got into Bitcoin initially was the, the freedom of banking, the freedom to own my own currency, um, the sovereignty in banking. And knowing that we have this, uh, this situation with mining pools, I mean, this should be... Like I said, this is like one of the, the biggest uh, untalked about things in, in the crypto ecosystem right now is the pool dilemma. Um, it, it's, it's very serious and uh, it, it has the potential to, I mean, really turn these networks into something we never wanted them to be. Yeah. And, and you know, it can get, can theoretically get really ugly. So, um, those individuals, yeah. like like if if I if I was one of those individuals, 
And especially if I had a material amount of Bitcoin and a material amount of wealth, well, I I would start looking across the world to find somebody to allow that transaction to occur. Oh. So here, here's the interesting. Here's, here's a fun story. Is uh, I'm gonna sorry my uh, let's switch here. Oh, side nice. and let's see if it reconnects. Okay. Uh, can can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're good. Um. It, let's see. I think I got to reconnect. Uh, back up. AirPods. Okay. So, um, fun story is when uh, Coinbase went public. Uh, Coinbase wanted to publish a message in a block. Right, uh, very similar to the message uh, Satoshi published in the very first block, this idea of like citing a reason why he was launching the Bitcoin network. Well, Coinbase did something similar where they were citing a bailout of, um, of well, Satoshi uh, cited bailout of banks. Um, Coinbase cited a uh, basically a stimulus uh, signing and this idea of like pumping more, more currency into the economy as though the currency was just, uh, I mean, meant nothing. Um, but the problem was, is Coinbase does not control hash rate. So the Coinbase could not mint that into the, the Coinbase message of a block. They actually had to partner with F2 pool um, to give them the message and for their IPO to mint that into a block, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the reality is um, mining, and, and blocks are actually not, or mining blocks is not controlled by miners anymore. It's actually controlled by pools. Um, and if an individual or a high net worth individual is locked down on a blacklist, the only way they're going to be able to move any of their uh, Bitcoin or their currency or finances is by um, hiring a pool to mine a block for them or to purchase hash rate themselves. And to be able to do that anonymously and um, in a decentralized manner, currently does not exist. Um, and that's that's why we're building Lumeran. It's going to be the first global, decentralized, trustless, and anonymous hash rate marketplace. Yeah, it's it's just critical. Um, I think for, 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 like you said, for everything that we stand for in the ethos, it's important. Um, I think pools, uh, um, you know, so we have... We have at most 15 pools in the world that matter right now, like that can yeah. do anything, right? That means mine one block in the last 30 days. That's it, right? Yeah. So um, I don't know the right number, but we should probably have a couple hundred. And yeah. and um, I, I, you know, I know that Satoshi um was aware of pools or the concept of pooling, but I, but I don't think he envisioned us being where we are today. Um, and, you know, I think he still thought there would be this, you know, millions of people out there just kind of mining in the background and, and there maybe be some farms, but, but there'd also be a whole well, bunch of people. This was, I mean, this was before we had specialized um, hardware for mining, right? Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, SHA-256 was done on a CPU. And we were thinking, you know, and he was thinking, everyone has computers, everyone has CPUs, it's going to, it's cost prohibitive 
to have tons and tons of CPUs. Therefore, this is going to be decentralized um, through proof of work. Um, we quickly adapted the algorithm to uh, GPUs using uh, GPUs to run SHA-256. And uh, then we started seeing more and more GPU farms start popping up where you could you know, put risers on a motherboard and you can have like five GPUs on a motherboard and you just you know, started scaling these things. Um, and then we started moving them into FPGAs and started realizing oh, we can build a, yeah. a circuit in an FPGA to run SHA-256 and roll that twice. And now you, you have a faster miner. And then we've moved into ASICs. Um, and what we've seen, and this is actually the altcoin battle, to, to go back to the original you know, discussion that we had starting out, was this idea that um, altcoins were changing the algorithm each time because they realized that uh, they wanted to stay ASIC resistant. And this was this was a big like cat and mouse game uh, through 2013 and 2014 where a new network would come out and you'd have like um, X11 and X12 and you know Crypto Knight and Crypto Knight 7 and, and Grosco School and all these different algorithms were coming out um, trying to uh, have an ASIC resistant and even some of them GPU resistant algorithm. And the, the idea was if we can keep uh, specialized hardware out of the algorithm, then we can keep the algorithm or the network decentralized. Yeah. And I actually got into a discussion with the SiaCoin guys about this because that was their whole mentality was yeah. keeping the algorithm decentralized um, with SiaCoin algorithm. Um, and and it, it just became this cat and mouse game um, where you don't want scalable hardware, you want it accessible for everyone. And and that's why I wrote the paper that I wrote in 2017 was this idea of decentralized control is you, you can never guarantee the ASIC resistance of an algorithm. Um, yeah. You know, may, maybe some algorithms are better than others. Eventually we have to assume that all encryption is going to be cracked and all you know, algorithms are eventually going to be solved for with an ASIC. Um, but what we can do is say, well, we shouldn't try to decentralize the location of the devices, right? So that's distributed computing. Okay, we want to decentralize is actually the, the um, distribution of control. That's, that's really what decentralization is. It's the distribution of control. Um, and there's levels of decentralization. Um, you could say that 100 people is decentralized in some cases, but in other cases, you could say 100 people is very centralized. Um, so our goal is to have decentralization or the distribution of control over as many people as possible. Um, and that's, that's why we, we think a, an open market around buying and selling hash rate will achieve that if it stays anonymous, if it stays trustless and it stays global. Um, as long as we can have a market of selling and buying hash rate and it, it's more profitable for a miner to sell their hash rate on an open market, um, then you know, we can achieve this uh, decentralization of control or distribution of control. Um, you know, what, what I would love to see in the future is that, that pools actually have to bid against each other on an open market to purchase hash rate. If a pool wants to create a block, they should actually have to bid against everyone else in order to buy that hash rate on a 24-hour basis to try to generate blocks. That's a fascinating um, idea. Yeah, fascinating idea. So, you know, it, we've, we've tried doing Stratum or Stratum version two is still, you know, rolling out. We, we've seen different, um, you know, better hash style models for uh, decentralizing the, the block creation. So being able to pick transactions that go in the block and moving that yeah. to the miners level. Um, 
but we're all trying to work towards the same puzzle. It's the idea of decentralizing the control of block creation. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, 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 the latter thought, um, just about, you know, minor selecting transactions. Um, I've had, I'll say, I've only had some cursory conversations very, very early from some, with some people who have said, Hey, can I, can I essentially buy some hash? Mm -hmm. um, maybe at some point in the future so that I can create resistance against high fees. So, you know, people, and these are some people that look at the future and might say, Hey, I, I might have a consistent level of transactions. I have to have occurring in 2024, 2025, 2026. Yeah. And I don't know what the fee structure is going to be. So is there a way that I could work with you, but I mean, in reality, it's probably me in a pool or, or maybe it's even just the pool and like what you're talking about to, um, because by the way, this whole, this whole mystery of fees is probably worth talking a little bit about too, which is, um, you know, I'd love to get your, um, your vision, your, your range of possibilities about where fees go, because it has a huge implications on the revenue stream of both miners and pools going forward. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love well, to kind of post having, I, what do you see? What so, do you, what do you so see? it's funny because the, the, the idea of uh, someone wanting to negotiate uh, purchasing hash rate to circumvent fees, like in the future, it, it reminds me of like the CEO of Southwest that like pre-bought their fuel, like so far into the future that while all the other airlines were having to raise their prices and like yeah. renegotiate, like Southwest took a huge chunk of the market because they were they're shirt up on their uh, their fuel costs. Right. Um, so it reminded me of that model. Um, so for fees, it's interesting because people will constantly ask me, like, is the long is Bitcoin and mining long term? Is it viable because the the blocks keep getting cut and or the block reward keeps getting cut in half, and eventually the idea of fees are going to have to you know take over uh, for being adequate compensation to a miner for using all this electricity. Um, so two things have to happen. Um, either the amount of fees in a block go up um, or the, the price of Bitcoin goes up, right? Um, so you, you, have, you have several different variables going into it. So if the block reward is zero um, and you, know, you have say a half a Bitcoin to a Bitcoin of fees, in a in a block now, um, that means that half a Bitcoin or Bitcoin of fees has to be worth enough to cover the electricity costs and opex of a miner, right. right? Because you have some very real uh, static costs for a miner is you know the, the the opex and the electricity, which are kind of mixed in there, but yep. I like to separate them out. Um, so. We know that uh, electricity, some of the cheapest electricity you can find currently is, you know, I've heard down to three and a half cents, three cents. I've heard miners talking about one and a half cent and one cent. And I think in Venezuela, someone was telling me under one cent. I don't know, but you know, yeah. uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of people will, will talk. But regardless, um, electricity is a very real um, static cost. Um, so I've always hypothesized that you could take that real static cost in the OPEX and you could uh, forward calculate what Bitcoin almost needs to be worth uh, depending on the, the fee structure uh, in a block. 
So if there's only going to be you know one Bitcoin or two Bitcoins in a block of fees, um, and that has to be enough money to uh, have a it be worth mining, then Bitcoin needs to be a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a coin, right? Um, so it, it has to make up for the value of the full block. The value of the block has to stay somewhat static or um, more so than it is today for it to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, these are you know, once again, yeah. hardware costs could go down and all these things could change, but that's always been my hypothesis. I, I think you're right. I think that um, I think the value of a block is is needs to be at a uh, safe margin above the cost of production, right? I mean, the the miners have to make a profit. And so, you know, we can expect it to commoditize, but as you've said, most likely we're going to see that the cost of that production stays relatively the same. So, you know, there's, there's always that, age old thing about price and hash and how, how did they relate to each other and what leads what. Um, and we're in a period, by the way, I, I wrote an article for Bitcoin magazine a while ago. Um, what was it? Bitcoin? I don't know. I wrote an article for somebody that, about how, um, how the China mining ban disrupted the correlation between the two. And that mm-hmm. we're in a period where um, that is still resettling. It's my opinion that, at the next having, or at the uh, at the point that we feel the next having, which is kind of uh, we're kind of like Jerome Powell too, right? It's not what the Fed actually does; it's what people think Jerome Powell is going to actually do. Well, yeah, it's the like, same sort of way. There's a point at which it, the it, realization it, of the having comes have, in, and then like, okay, well, then <laughs> price and hash and all these other things are going to react to it. Well, I think it's the same way, and then and then we'll start to see kind of this natural rebalancing. Um. But yeah. it's very important. Uh, it's extremely important. And I think this issue of censorship, I think you're onto something extremely important. The, the product is Luminin. Lumerin. It's L-U-M-E-R-I-N. Yeah. yeah. I think a concept like that is very important. What it also does is I think it, 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 um, it maybe makes it easier, if I'm understanding it correctly, for maybe several dozen other pools to pop up around the world, you know? And, yeah. and I think if we can get them in different jurisdictions, let's say El Salvador, which is a very Bitcoin friendly and Bitcoin ethos friendly place, um, you know, and, or maybe it's in Russia or maybe it's in the Ukraine or maybe it's in North Korea. I mean, I think if we're true Bitcoin people, we shouldn't really care. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, and it's, it has to be, it has to be agnostic, right? Um, regardless of your feelings on geopolitical events, regardless of your idea of morals and ethics, it has to stay agnostic. And that's sometimes it's the cost of freedom is sometimes evil people profit just as much as good people. Um, but for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ecosystems to survive, it has to stay agnostic. Yeah. And I would, I would add, by the way, I don't think it's Bitcoin's job to determine good and evil because those are just you know i mean all of us have our own perspective of it but there's just our perspective and and yeah and that's i mean 
there, there's so many things in, in our life that are, are controlled for us. Right. Um, we were, and, and I, and I said this in Miami too, and kind of my closing remarks is this idea that, uh, for better or worse, we were, we were born into ecosystems that were, were essentially chosen for us. Um, the, the way we, we handle identity, the way we handle banking, um, the way we communicate, a lot of that is just following uh, the tide of society. Um, the, the problem is um, when you start looking into an aspect called freedom. Um, freedom is a very scary thing for governments um, because governments a lot of times survive off of control, whether it be control of financial systems, control of communication systems, control of um, even you know property and uh, down to a, a granular level. Um, governments survive off control, um, uh, long-term anyways. Uh, so something like cryptocurrency, something like these decentralized networks um, can be incredibly threatening um, to a lot of governments. Um, and, and that's, that's like this fine, fine line that we're, we're trying to, trying to walk here is how do we build systems that provide freedom and sovereignty for the individual, um, but aren't immediately like squashed and like attacked by governmental authorities worldwide. Um, you know, and, and we've, we've seen it like China is, is, um, essentially attacking a lot of these systems by, you know, banning them. Um, we, we've seen it in a lot of countries doing that. Um, so it's, <laughs> I, I don't have the answer for it. Um, I, I just know that we are, we're building technology and we're working in an ecosystem that is, is providing freedom, that is protecting freedom and it's giving the individual um, sovereignty. And that is something I, I strongly believe in um, and working with the governmental authorities and working inside the bounds of compliance, um, you know, that, that's a, it's a balancing act that, that we're very cognizant of. Um, especially here in the U.S., when when it comes to finances, um, it's it's not an easy not an easy thing to navigate. It's very hard, and you know, it's it's my personal opinion. That's part of the reason I'm here. Um, is that I don't believe money should be a, a weapon. I don't believe it should be a means of control. Yeah, and I even think that while each of us probably has our own perspective about like good and evil um certain countries or at least the leadership in those countries being good or evil that by allowing by 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 them if they if they use bitcoin as a way to circumnavigate sanctions i believe it's a pandora's box for them that mm -hmm. that if, if they start transacting with Bitcoin, that essentially what they've done is they will, they will in the short term benefit, but in the long term, they'll find that, that it's now eating from the inside out to provide freedom within that country, that they've, mm -hmm. they've let the seeds of freedom into their very own country by, by doing that. And so I, I say, let them. Right. And, yeah. and support them. And I hope they do. It, it, it's an interesting thing. Um, so in, in, a, in a 
different direction and kind of on the same idea of freedom. So we, we talk about like banking and financial freedom. Um, another aspect is freedom of communication. And a lot of like who we are and our identity is, is wrapped up into, into these uh, communication uh, devices, if you will. It'd be our phones, uh, it'd be our Instagram account, our Facebook account, all our social media, um, the, way, the way we interact with people, even through our telephone number, that's really become our identity. That's how people contact us. That's how um, people access us. Um, and I feel like that's another single point of failure because that's a place in the society and in this world that actually we don't control those accounts. We don't control our Facebook account. We don't control our you know, Telegram or anything. Um, we're using a, very sen- like a, a platform that is very susceptible to censorship, as we've seen. Um, as our primary means of communication and our primary means of identity. And um, this is, this is another area that, you know, we're actually going to be working on with the Lumeran project. Uh, So first, first stop with the Lumeran project is hash rate, this idea of decentralization of control and routing hash rate. Um, But because we have this idea of, we have a, a, a sender node and a receiver node that are transacting through a smart contract. Um, we can actually take that same model and we can build a decentralized communication mechanism where uh, rather than having a cell phone number, if you will, I can have a, uh, a private key or a wallet and you can open up a direct socket to my, to my node uh, if I give you an NFT, for example. And that NFT allows your node to create a direct socket to my node, and then we can communicate through an encrypted channel. Um, so that that's like uh, that's base level is uh, how do yeah. how do I transact communication um, or data in a in a decentralized way, and now own my own my identity, own my uh, ways of communicating it through a decentralized network. So that that's that's a whole nother rabbit hole discussion, um, but I wanted to touch on that because I think that's yeah. really important too when it comes to freedom is this idea of uh, building, building projects that allow us to own our currency, own our identity, and own our communication. So where, where, this might be a good place to kind of wrap up a little bit, Ryan. Where, where do people lo- learn about Lumeran? Where do they learn about Titan? Um, yeah. Where, uh, where else so, would you like to direct them? Yeah, so Titan.io is everything mining pools. Um, if you're interested in getting involved in the mining pool, you can go to pool.titan.io check it out. Um, so definitely love for you to evaluate the software. Um, we, we believe in fully transparent mining, um, even to the point where our, our full pool wallet and our reserves uh, that back our payouts is actually fully auditable and accessible. Um, and that's all actually in the interface. So that's almost unheard of in the pool ecosystem right now. Yeah, um, you can you validate. Can actually, I saw that this morning. You, so. you, can, you can see our wallets. Um, so Titan.io is our pool side. And then our open source development efforts um, is the Lumeran project. So it's L-U-M-E-R-I-N, and that's .io. So you can follow us on Telegram, follow us on Twitter. Um, it's, it's not an easy uh, nut to crack. It's, it's a very difficult project. We've been working at it for a couple of years now. Um, and we've made some amazing uh, headway in it. Um, but yeah, we, we post all our updates on Lumeran.io outstanding um i'm really glad we got a chance to do this today ryan um i i think what your mission is is very philosophically aligned with 
with my mission, with, with with me personally and with my companies, hopefully with a lot of the listeners. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just say to everybody out there, a lot of you are in the mining community, um, throw a little hash at Titan and throw a little hash at, at, at somebody else um, other yeah. than the big three to five. Um, these people need our support. The ecosystem needs our support. Um, uh, it's not all just about the money, although I don't, I don't know that you'll find any financial damage from going with any of these. You might even find a little more, uh, and, and that's wonderful, but, but reduce your dependency on the bigger players, support the ecosystem, um, and support people like Ryan who, who are key to the future of, of Bitcoin itself. So Ryan, thank you very much for coming on today and, and yeah, really look absolutely. forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Bob. Likewise. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ryan Condren. Mining pools play such an important role in the Bitcoin ecosystem, and it's vital that a diverse set of mining pools be available to all miners, and also that the hash rate is reasonably distributed across them. Ryan and the Titans team's efforts really need our support. Ryan can be found on Twitter at Ryan K. Condren, and you can learn more about Titan at titan.io. Mind Your Business is brought to you by Barefoot Mining. And if you'd like to support this show, donations to the Bitcoin wallet address listed in the show notes would be greatly appreciated. The music in the intro and outro is a song called Flight from my friend and fellow Bitcoiner Jordan Kritz. Please check him out on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite music platform. Nothing in this show should be construed as legal, tax, or financial advice. Thank you.